Does my voice still sound good? It does. It sound you sound great. Oh, um, sweet, sweet. <laughs> yeah, nice. <laughs> cool. Hi, um, I'm Jessica, the Reboot newsletter editor, and I'm here today with Luke Eigel, a friend and computer science student at MIT. He's been working on a documentary called Regressions, a history of MIT over the past 80 or so years. And I'm super excited to chat with him today about it. I watched a rough cut and it covers a ton of ground, just overall a super interesting project. Um, and so, yeah, just to get us started with context, Luke, do you want to just tell us what Regressions is and who it's for? For sure. So MIT Regressions is a feature-length documentary about the history of MIT going from World War II up until COVID-19. My co-director Wesley and I decided that we wanted to cover this entire range of history where student life was uninterrupted and where we had footage of most of the core events that happened throughout it. It started out just as a joke and it turned into something much larger with the script that became increasingly big up until the point we're at now where we cover, we try to cover as many different interconnecting themes and characters as possible that help explain why American universities in general are the way they are uh, by explaining how they get their funding, what they've been up to these past 80 years, and what the student body has been like and how it's evolved. I don't know if it's the podcast, mic or that you've given this pitch many <laughs> times, but you sound so official. Okay. Um, yeah, I guess we can sort of dig into a little bit of the content on just to start off with, so who is Regressions for? Like, who, who are you trying to reach with this project that, like you said, started out super casually? It started out for our friends, our fellow undergrads, who we all go to school together. But it very quickly became just a movie for anyone who's interested in the role of the university when it comes to science, engineering, research, and how that applies to the world at large. And we try to strike that balance between uh, Easter eggs that only people kind of familiar with the Cambridge Boston area would see, and just the most relatable points that we could. Pretty much every university experienced a profound amount of student activism in the late 60s in response to the Vietnam War. And most of the major arcs and turns that the story goes through can apply to many, many other colleges. This is We find that just American history in general was a super interesting thing to examine through MIT specifically, as it reacted to all these major changes, whether the massive rise of military spending in World War II, the creation of what we now consider the innovation pipeline, which I know sounds very buzzwordy, but <laughs> before that was even a buzzword, and the rise of other institutions such as NASA, such as the NSF, and all these other things that we go over in the movie. Yeah, totally. So I guess like when I was watching, or after I finished watching, I tried just drawing out a diagram of everything that you covered here. Um, and I think everything ties back in some way to you know, student life and campus culture, uh, the military, how MIT gets funded, the relationship between MIT as a school and the city of Cambridge. And I think all of these things and sort of the topics that you were just mentioning um, really like gets down to a pretty existential question, which is like, why does MIT exist in the way that it does now? And, you know, like 50 years ago, why did MIT exist? What's its purpose as an academic institution? Um, and yeah, like maybe we can talk a little bit about like, you know, MIT was really has like historically always been very close with the military, for example. Um, and what does that mean for what what the institution is meant to do now and like in 2022? I looked back at the original founding of MIT in like the 1860s and the founder of it, William Barton Rogers, was very upset that there was no high quality trade school that he could see anywhere. He was surrounded by the likes of Harvard, ways to educate the clergy and not much else. But as America was rapidly industrializing, he saw a need for a school that was both scientifically rigorous and one that could properly train field engineers, civic engineers, chemical engineers to some degree. And we saw that got supercharged once World War II happened. And that's the point at which we wanted to talk about the movie or to talk about in the movie. Yeah, I think that, the reason why MIT... Oh, oh, sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I think that's funny because I feel like now people use trade school somewhat in a derogatory manner, in a joking way. But yeah, yeah, sorry, I interrupted. No, not at all. I think the reason why MIT exists now, uh, I think I would agree with Noam Chomsky here. He said in an interview recently that the role of MIT is to help create the high-tech economy of the future. And that's a very buzzwordy term at, at its surface level. But if you look at the primary projects that MIT is undertaking, and 
many of its peer universities. It's receiving massive amounts of funding from the likes of the Pentagon, from private concerns, and from individuals to help push forward these speculative technologies that we all know will be crucially important. And, and we can see this just in the past 30, 40 years. I guess the internet is a good, very recent example, where it required incredible amounts of an injection of capital from the likes of DARPA and the likes of others to kind of will this thing into existence, this thing that will not happen by default. Uh, that does require an incredible amount of capital upfront and an incredible amount of coordination. And if you look at it that way, then the question becomes, what is the way that MIT has done that? And we see through the very first few minutes of our movie that it is through war, specifically by making weapons of war and by building upon these, again, highly speculative technologies such as radar, such as inertial navigation, using gyroscopes to actually orient yourself in space. It turns out that the best way to rapidly apply that and the best way to get funding for that uh, is, in this case, to work for the Allies and to work against uh, Germany and Japan back then. And so we start out the movie by going over the core characters who did that. Uh, one character who just keeps coming up over and over and over again is Vannevar Bush. He was the dean of engineering at MIT back in the 1930s. He then goes on to found this company called Raytheon, which very quickly pivots into selling weapons and uh, radar-based devices. And he ends up working very closely with President Roosevelt's administration alongside the president of MIT to give MIT a massive leg up in who is receiving this new influx of funding. And it sounds kind of trivial now, but what they did was they just created these brand new laboratories, such as the Radiation Lab, to pair up pure scientists, physicists, chemists, and others with engineers in order to create things like a miniaturized radar that you could then fit inside of the nose of an airplane. And again, it seems trivial today, but they built an entire curriculum around this idea, and it allowed them to achieve like a much more decisive end to the war. And I think the most interesting thing and the reason why we wanted to continue making this movie is you see that that momentum that was generated during the war and during this era where the government became more Keynesian, became much more interested in just spending, taking on incredible amounts of debt and spending an incredible amount of cash, you get institutions that can keep this moving forward. And so we see with Vannevar Bush, the creation of the National Science Foundation, which if you've ever had to work as a grad student or even work as an undergraduate researcher, you know how central that is to like determining what your lab, what your PI can get away with, right? And you see institutions like that only continue. And so once we get that first, those plot points out of the way, the first 20, 30 minutes, we want to examine then uh, how MIT keeps this momentum going with the Cold War, how students eventually react to it through the Vietnam protests. And as the government's, as the government's funding continues to get overshadowed by more private corporations from the 1970s onward, how that changes the character of this research. And that is was among the more interesting things for us to go over. And I guess that entire story that I just gave is definitely not unique to MIT. I guess the fun thing about the story is the, the texture of it, the individual characters and their personalities. The fact that all of this is on film uh, is what makes it special. Yeah, totally. Um, and that's a great segue to the next sort of broad questions I wanted to ask, which is about like this general filmmaking process, what it's like to put together this actual artifact. Um, if you want to back up a little bit and just, you know, how did you even get started and why did you decide to make a full-length documentary to begin with? And, you know, part of this question also is just like, where are you finding this footage that's, you know, decades old <laughs> at this point? It's a good question. I, after a very strong recommendation from a very close friend, uh, she recommended this movie called Hypernormalization by some BBC journalist named Adam Curtis. I watched it back in November of 2020. COVID was peaking in terms of lockdowns. I was up in Utah with a bunch of other friends just taking a full gap year. And I saw this movie that just completely blew my mind. And it was just this vast expanse of archival footage of spanning the history of America, uh, Britain, various other countries from the 1970s onwards overlaid with a strange, like an atmospheric and hypnotic industrial music. And I realized that I had in my memory, like seeing a lot of footage that was very similar to this, but from MIT. And I thought, well, it'd be funny if I made like a parody of this movie, but with like the footage of MIT that I know existed. And my very good friend, Wesley, who I would, him and I would just constantly send a lot of this old footage to each other back and forth. I sent him this joke video that I made that was two and a half minutes. And immediately he was like, let's write a script for this. So we write just like a broad overview. Okay, what if we were to add narration to this? What would happen? 
then if we go over footage of the 50s and 60s and 70s that we can download from YouTube. And quickly, the, pay, the script turned from 10 to 15 to 50 to 100 pages very quickly. I knew right away that Wesley uh, had to be the narrator, just given, uh, given how good his voice is. And we were really inspired. I, I guess what pushed us over the line was seeing a lot, just the incredible expansive footage that was available of MIT for free, like on YouTube. There's this guy uh, named Kenny who actually published this movie called MIT Progressions, uh, which came out in 1969. I wrote that we call it MIT Regressions as a joke, and I guess we just never got rid of it. That was like the most uh, creative thing we could come up with. And it's this just this movie of very contemplatively looking at what students were like in the late 60s while the Vietnam protests were at their peak, while the student body was becoming far more diverse. It was the first decade that women were even going to that school in large numbers. And just these gorgeous shots of students hanging on campus, hanging around on campus. And we were like, if we can capture this vibe, but across all 80 years, and this is, this is something we have to work on. And so we wanted to continue working in the same spirit that this Kenny guy did. He himself was an MIT student who convinced uh, the MIT libraries to try to find this lost tape. Uh, apparently it was mislabeled, so it was lost for decades. They, up, they finally digitized it, they handed it off to him. He released it to the entire internet for everyone to see. And we wanted to vastly increase this canon that he and many others were contributing to. And so we find that MIT Progressions was not the only documentary about MIT that just very slowly and beautifully examines what student life was like. We found a very similar version of this from the 90s, really strange one from the 30s. It was just called Technology. And it was very clearly like, <laughs> and it's just uh, them going around like this dinky biology lab. Apparently MIT's biology department was not nearly as respected back then. So it's just one guy with like a test tube, just like staring at a bacteria. And then they, they show off like all the, they show off the really cool boats that they were good at making back then. So you kind of get to see what MIT was like before this massive influx of funding and prestige and importance came. And we have others. Uh, famously, there's the Social Beaver film from the 1950s, where there's a very, I had seen this in class because there's this very notorious section where they show the first co-ed, the first women at MIT. Back then, they called them co-eds, of course. Uh, and you could imagine how they talked about them in that scene. And all these different films were around here, but there wasn't a ton. And so we extensively went on the internet archive, went on various blogs that had like links to flash players that had like really low quality versions of this. And we realized very quickly, like this is not going to be enough to actually make a film that's compelling. And so we realized also that there's a lot of really good AI based tools coming out that could upscale this stuff to like 2k, 4k resolution that could colorize this black and white footage to make it look like it actually happened in real life. And just every single week, even today at last few days, we discover new footage, either that YouTube doesn't really show you in the first 10, 20 pages of results or that something that someone emails to us. And it wasn't until the MIT libraries properly opened back in like fall of 2021 that we were able to go in there, get some hard drives, find like the stuff that we had been coveting for over like for over a year at that point. I think the most famous one was getting access to this film called The November Actions. Uh, I took this class, I finally decided to take this class on the history of documentaries, or on just like documentary making at MIT last semester, and found out through that class just the important, all these really interesting documentarians that came out of MIT. And it was only then that I realized that there is already a strong tradition at this school of just making these very true to form, slow and contemplative shots and scenes of what life is like. The November actions though is of the peak of the Vietnam protests when hundreds of students are crowding the streets, they're getting swatted down by, by police and they're protesting various labs that were originally created during World War II era. I know that was a lot of ranting, but that's a little <laughs> bit of an explanation. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. I have a ton of follow-ups. Um, I guess the first follow-up is like, you mentioned all of these different, uh, different documentaries made at different points in time. Um, I guess, where do you place regressions within this canon? Like, do you have a sense of how your intentions differ from those films? Um, anything about, I guess, like one obvious contrast is a lot of the, a lot of regressions is found footage from these previous uh, films. Um, and for the most part, it doesn't seem like you're shooting new footage. Um, is that like a function of COVID or is this an intentional decision to sort of resurface, um, you know, this like, past almost 100 years of movies that MIT students have been making? 
It's a good question. Uh, someone asked me something similar when we did our premiere, like MIT's big lecture hall a few months ago. A friend was like, uh, it seems like our culture is very, is obsessed with reboots and uh, just kind of recompiling stuff that already happened. Why do you think you guys did the same thing? And I was like, oh shit, <laughs> I guess we did that, didn't we? But it was definitely because of COVID. Uh, we realized, I, perhaps our thought process would have been different. I don't even think that this would have happened had COVID not occurred because both Wesley and I took gap years. We didn't want to go through university by Zoom. So much of what we loved about college was being there on campus. So who knows if we would have given ourselves the time if times were normal to do that. But I think it is interesting that that is what we ended up doing. I mean, towards the later decade, we do a lot of the shots are ours. We either mask them as seeming like they happened like in the 2000s, early, early 2010s. But we try to like have any pickup shots and establishing shots from like the later era over there. Totally. But I think now is a good time, I think. I think that was what we decided from the beginning, that now would be a very good time to take a step back and see what has happened between these two mega crises that has completely turned MIT on its head. Between the war, when everyone was expected to just completely upend their lives, and COVID, where everyone was expected to very depressively and very uh, slow and very slowly and without initially realizing what was happening, put this whole in-person university experience on pause. Yeah, and and I think it's like I think the topics that you do cover are pretty much I think the media and MIT student or anyone probably isn't super aware of it. Um, and I guess I'm wondering how did you pick what topics to ultimately cover and what to not include? Like, is there anything you wanted to? include in the coverage that you had footage for but you didn't like you were it just like didn't fit or is there something you wanted to include but you couldn't find footage for and how much was this like availability of stuff from the past you know few decades how much did availability sort of shape the final narrative of the product that's a good question i think the availability completely shaped what the movie ended up being uh, I think maybe a criticism is that we we cover a lot of controversy, a lot of things when MIT was, people were upset with MIT or MIT was recently had come out in the news for whatever reason. But I think that's entirely a consequence of what is on film. And we knew that there's just such a strange uncanniness when you see a su very high resolution shot of a place you're used to and of students living their lives from 50, 60 years ago. And if there's footage of it, we want to figure out a way to put it in the movie. And that that really did affect the themes that we cover. But we still had to do a lot of trimming. I think the core topics that we do cover, uh, the military's role at MIT, vast series of protests throughout campus, whether it's because of the uh, America's war in Vietnam, because of uh, MIT's treatment of the homeless and uh, low-income housing, people of low-income housing in Cambridge in the 1980s. All these different things are just were so incredibly compelling that we wanted to build a script around these things. We knew that this this one event called Tent City, that it occurred in the 1980s, in which MIT students and uh, homeless people and citizens of Cambridge in general all protested against MIT's planned development. We knew that this was crucial, and we knew that we had to build this up over the course of like many hours in order to make it so that this moment fully made sense. Yeah, totally. Um, I guess one. Okay, this is like a little bit tangential, but um, I was, I guess, like, given that, like, so much of this is um, sort of a function of just picking up footage that is available, um, and there's there's voiceover and there's a script, but a lot of the film is presented as, you know, you, like, sit there and you experience what's happening on screen, um, and you sort of process that yourself. Um, I was listening to another podcast that um, was interviewing a documentary filmmaker um, and to like really, really roughly paraphrase this filmmaker, um, she was like, she sometimes gets criticism because her films often seem passive or neutral and don't provide a ton of commentary. Um, but she was saying that she, see her, she's her, she sees her job um, as a documentary filmmaker as not to tell a story or to make an argument but to show as much raw footage and information as possible and sort of just like let the audience form their own judgments based on what they see on the screen. Um, and that was like really similar to sort of the vibe I got watching, um, watching the rough cut at least. Um, and I'm really curious how you mentioned you were taking this documentary class at MIT. Like how do you view your role as filmmaker slash storyteller slash curator of information and how much of your own intentionality versus 
how much you want the material to just sort of speak for itself. I appreciate the comparison. I'm a huge, I realize you're referencing a time to say goodbye. I'm a huge fan of that. So that's cool. Um, <laughs> I think uh, that was definitely the goal from the get go. I think what I, what struck me so heavily about the style of documentary making when I first saw that Adam Curtis movie was just how powerful it is. If you have high quality footage of the past and you just let people sit in it and you boost that feeling with whatever music you want. We wanted to be as raw as possible, and we wanted to really make this a meditation on all these different themes. And so by having an extended scene where we just have Noam Chomsky talking to William F. Buckley, debating whether the Vietnam War is, is evil and monstrous or not, gives you a sense of perspective that I genuinely did not feel like I had before, knowing exactly how people spoke, how they dressed, how they argued, and how they operated on the knowledge that they had at the moment. And it gives you, I think, an additional amount of perspective when you, the viewer, they, you know what ends up happening, at least when we talk about the Vietnam War episode. You end up knowing what happens to Nixon by the end. But of course, no one in this chap part of the chapter knows yet. And it allows you to, to wonder how you yourself would have acted. And it allows you to kind of realize just uh, what it means to be placed at this point in history. And I also think one thing that movies are really good at doing is when the sound design, when the music, when the, the image all comes together, it just creates this, this beautiful feeling. It allows you to... The vibe becomes amazing, right? <laughs> and we try very hard to to make it feel as fun as possible to watch and as like aesthetically pleasing as possible uh, when that is appropriate to do. And I think all those things are perfect for this kind of documentary, right? Yeah, no, I totally like when I first, you know, the first like 10, 15 minutes of it, I was like, oh my God, like the music and the narration like really, really shapes the way that I, you watch the what's going on on screen. Um, and I really appreciate the way that you sort of curated that. Um, I think maybe now we can just sort of talk about the actual content, like actual history. Yeah. Um, of course. Yeah. Um, I guess, so we can just like start by talk. We, I think you've mentioned, um, and we've been talking around a little bit, um, this like history of student protest at MIT. Um, and something that's like really striking about the earlier decades, especially um, you know, around the Vietnam War is how militant and genuinely radical student activism was. Like the protests you can see on screen, they're super intense um, to the extent that like riot police were called in. There was some violent enforcement action. Students went to prison. Um, and like it, all of this feels very radical to me now, but it also feels like a lot of the student body was like sort of on board with it. The UA, the, I don't know what that stands for. It's like the presidency of the, the undergraduate body. association yeah yes. the, <laughs> the student council president guy yes like the <laughs> like the person who like won that election like ran on a very radical platform and there were you know even public conversations about whether the fact that noam chomsky was anti-war but also a professor um if that served to legitimize the institution um conversations like that being super public and i think i was really surprised watching this because my perception, and also you can correct me if this is unfair, but I think my perception of 2022 MIT as someone who has a lot of friends affiliated with MIT and based on conversations with people I know is that generally the student body feels pretty apolitical, um, <laughs> if not actively anti-political, um, which feels like a huge shift from this like, you know, very intense, politically engaged um like in, in a very visceral way uh, from like several decades ago. And wondering if you have thoughts on like, like why, why this happened? No, I appreciate, no, I appreciate that a lot. And I would agree. Um, things do feel pretty apolitical depending on, I think every major has a stereotype. The, I think there's a stereotype that the physics students are actually pretty politically engaged and that mechanical engineering students are not all over the place. But I think our, a lot of the work that we tried to do when we covered the 1960s was explain how students went from very apolitical as they are now to very engaged, and then how they went back down to their current state. And I think if you, that is much of what we try to examine in the 70s and 80s onward, and how there are all these different forces, and there are many different voices coming to students, insisting that either that we do have the power, in the case of the anti-war protests, to end war research at MIT. Uh, you're referring to Michael Albert. He was he ran for UA president in the late '60s, and he ended up winning on a runoff or on as a write-in. 
uh, saying that he wants to end all war research at MIT. He wants to uh, adopt the demands of the Black Students' Union, which was recently formed at the time. Uh, and if you were to look at what the platforms of all the other undergraduate association candidates were, it was like, as president of MIT, I will be uh, someone who respects you, or, you know, just normal stuff. Right? And I was struck just how by straight and to the point it all was. And I think the re I asked one of the people who was involved with this whole protest scene. Uh, he was a member of the Students for a Democratic Society chapter at MIT. His name is George. He's a major character later on in that chapter after we interviewed with him. And I said to him, like, what do you think happened? I mean, you've been to, there were protests against the US invasion of Iraq in the early 2000s and you were there. seems like they weren't as intense when you were a student. Like, what, what's going on? He was like, well, the war ended. And I was like, oh yeah, I guess you're right. <laughs> right. And I think there is some truth to that, right? I think a lot of the militancy that we see throughout the entire country and even in other nations, like in France in the late 60s, I think part of it was because a lot of these kids genuinely felt like their lives were at risk because they were in very real senses. And I think the reason that doesn't happen anymore is because we don't draft people. The US government, the US military does not draft kids and it does not crucially does not draft middle-class kids who go to universities and have time to protest. Instead, it's volunteer-based, and instead, there are other ways in order to get the numbers that they need. And I think that the way in which it very, very directly affected all of the men on campus and all of the women as well, I think contributed a lot to why people felt like they had nothing to lose, why people were willing to get their skulls swatted at by riot police, uh, albeit riot police were much less heavily armored than they are today, but still. And I think it's because they genuinely felt that they were at risk of getting sent off to war. And I think it's a very different incentive than we have today, the incentive for protesting. Nowadays, I think yeah, a lot of it... Yeah, about nowadays. <laughs> well, I think we talk about extensively in the 1980s, uh, the rise of what seems to be careerism or the rise of the yuppie. We try to go a lot into why war research, working at Boeing, Draper, Raytheon and others, it's not the most sexy thing you can do as a student at MIT. And I would, from what I gather, it's not the same at other like engineering centric schools. And I think that's because they now had to compete with uh, even richer companies, such as these companies of the new economy from the 1970s onward that came from the rise of digital computation and the, uh, the neoliberal turn, as some people like to call it. There's a, a large series of deregulations that occurred from the 70s and 80s onward that made it so that high finance was able to reclaim some of its pre-Great Depression hegemony. So Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, uh, they were more encouraged to actually hire some of the top MIT, Stanford, Yale students uh, from throughout the entire country, whereas before it was much more sleepy, much more legacy-based. The Dow was growing a, a healthy 2%, 3% per year. But as inflation was taking off in the 70s and 80s, you saw a massive need across the entire economy to massively increase the rate of productivity, increase the rate of uh, profitability. And what that meant was the sorts of jobs that you need out of the average graduating class of MIT was going to change. There was more than just producing weapons of war, and there was more than just working uh, in these various organs of the state. And I think there's a good quote from Chomsky. He's speaking in, in front of the student center. And I myself was shocked to see that he's just hanging in front of the, the student center, just talking to a group of like 20 kids. He's like, you're going to encounter a lot of pressure to work for the State Department, to work at a military contractor to work as a, I think is what he said, a, uh, a pragmatic planner of the American empire, right? And every single incentive is going to point towards you doing that. And it's up to you to whether you want to succumb to that or not. And I think that same logic still applies, but it's more towards high finance and it's more towards tech. It's more towards these new parts of the economy that have since grown in importance since Chomsky gave that speech. And I think that leads to a sense of apathy. And I think that leads to a sense that there's a lot more to lose if you uh, act really rude and really, <laughs> really rude to your professors and your president by protesting, I think your odds of doing well in your career are going to go down significantly. Yeah, well, that's a little bit depressing, I think, in the sense that um, my my sort of what I'm hearing based on what you're describing of like the war protests, it's like there was a very like it was maybe less about the actual politics of the war and more about you know, the fact that, you know, like you as a student may have had to leave and go fight and possibly die. Um, is that <laughs> I, my what when I watched the film, I was like, wow, like these people really care about politics. Are you saying that like 
a lot of the reason that they cared about politics was primarily, you know, out of like self-interest for their like own like livelihoods. No, I don't want to emphasize that too much. I think we give an incredible amount of screen time to the horrific images that were coming out of Vietnam that journalists were putting on American TV and like everyone was forced to watch just the footage of a forest of a village is just getting bombed relentlessly really did strike the, uh, the souls of all the people living, everyone in America, especially kids on campus. And you see in some footage that we have of the November actions, we see those, those two, uh, 20 year old students getting into a debate The one guy is like, yeah, or one guy's being like, do you think it's right that they're dropping napalm on innocent women and children? The other guy's like, well, the national liberation front is, isn't much better either. Right? And they're going back and forth. And you don't really hear them mention, uh, well, I'm upset with this because I'm getting drafted. But then at the very end of this exchange, the one, the guy who's uh, speaking out against the North Vietnamese army, he says, uh, I know all of this because I was there and I saw the war crimes they were committing. Mm-hmm. And so I think it is this under, there is this underlying tone that um, yeah. I, yeah. They, do have a per- they do have a personal experience, but they also do have like a genuine moral revulsion for what is being forced down their throats on TV every single night. But I think a lot of this was both a combination of what they were seeing in the media, testimony that they were hearing from people, and the fact that they were going to be forced to go in there. Um, one of my math teachers, who I think was a student in Cambridge back in the 70s, uh, he said that he had consistent nightmares in his early 20s that his draft number was going to get called. And uh, I remember I was like 19 when he told me this. I was like, damn, I, I just cannot imagine that happening to me. Right? I, I cannot imagine a world where the government would uh, try that on my generation of people. Right? Right. Yeah. And it's like, I I guess, like, I feel like for us, it's very easy to feel insulated from or isolated from, like, all the shit that the American military is doing now. Um, But I I guess that's the thing, right? It's like, it's like so far removed from our day to day lives that it, it feels like less of a, like, like you said, like, it feels like there's like maybe more to lose. Um, if you're to like get arrested or like piss off your professor who like won't write you a letter of record or something like that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, and which, which is weird, right? Like if you think about it, the stakes are totally different. Um, like, oh no, your professor won't write you a letter versus like, I don't know, like people are dying. Like it's a literal people are dying meme. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, yes. And, and your, uh, and, and your classmates are, uh, pr- are assembling the weapons that make that happen. Right. Yeah, yeah, and, seriously. <laughs> and um, I think uh, we saw other schools go through this as well. We gave, we if you were asking earlier about stuff we wanted to include more, I um, mean, there's Columbia's protests were probably the most famous. They lost an entire semester because where instead of engineering, uh, a lot of labs at at Columbia were helping with the consulting side of things, uh, the more yeah. the soft skills behind making the Vietnam War uh, happen, right? And it was a pretty universal feeling, right? Every Every university has something to contribute to just the production of this entire thing. Totally. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, like to sort of circle back at, you were sort of making this point about like finance becoming really big in like the like eighties. Um, and that being sort of the new thing that sucks people in and sort of is like now like the, the new default thing to do. Um, what do you think about like either like, you know, the current, quote unquote the current moment or like the past like x number of years um or finance itself that has made it such an easy like source um or i guess like it would be a sink um for uh, <laughs> coming out of kind of come, coming out of mit and like what are the incentives where like oh it's not maybe not cool to work for the military but maybe it can be cool to work for like de shaw or like jane street or something yeah, I guess D.E. Shaw and Jane Street are good recent examples, I guess, from the past 25 years or so of like how it, that has been put on overdrive. And that those jobs, the quant finance jobs, are very well tuned for the sorts of like physics and math curriculums that you're expected to go through here. I think we try really hard to establish like the economic argument in the way that's still like fun to watch of why students felt the need to suddenly jump into these jobs. We have that big inflation graph at the beginning of the 80s. And you see that inflation is hitting by the late 70s and early 80s, like 9, 10, 11, 12% consistently for many years in a row. And tuition is going up. The cost of rent is going up constantly. And as these students are taking out these increasingly higher student loans, 
and so many of them come from like middle class or not or upper middle class backgrounds that are not sufficiently wealthy there's going to be a stronger incentive to pay down those loans and a stronger incentive to keep maintain a good life for yourself right especially given that MIT is a private university although its financial aid is good uh, it was not enough to offset this incent- this very genuine incentive. And I think that is, even if you ignore, without even litigating like the importance of like of high finance as, as we currently think of it, I think that itself is like a pretty understandable reason why it became so much more popular. And especially uh, when money is, is the core of, of, like is your core concern, obviously you're going to be pushed more towards the ones that pay better. Totally. And it's like, this is, And I think this conversation is super interesting because this is like totally not unique to MIT. Like maybe it's unique that like Jane Street loves MIT, but like in general, this sort of pressures towards, you know, finding it like optimizing for a job that makes you a lot of money. I think that's pretty universal across like almost every college. Right. And there's sort of this vicious (laughs) cycle where like school is expensive. So you have to take out loans and then you feel like you have to like, justify that or pay those you just like literally have to pay those back by taking an expensive job or taking a job that allows you to pay those loans back um but then there's also this thing where like i i don't know like because you're paying so much for a school then you're like well why am i not getting like xyz amenities from the university and stuff like that which is which is super interesting and i do want to talk about um sort of this like student culture dorm life um thread in a second um but yeah i also just wanted to like i like read this interview um in the new york times a while back where you know basically apparently people were saying that we can if we like impose debt on people then they're not going to be protesting the vietnam war or for civil rights because you know if like people feel this pressure they're not gonna like there's like a lot more to lose basically right um and i think to your point, that's like, that's like totally accurate. Um, and yeah, it's a chilling I'm, quote. Sorry. It's a chilling quote. The one that you have sent here. Um, yeah, I think it confirms a lot of like, we, we go over a lot of the old Nixon tapes that got leaked famously in the early seventies. Uh, and we show Nixon complaining about MIT and like, why the hell are we given all this? De- why the hell are we giving all this defense money to MIT? If their students don't even believe in it, these, these very funny scenes where he's complaining to his various staffers. And some of his other tapes, actually, he is talking exactly about this. And I think he's revealing how much the federal government learned from this whole episode of mass protest, which is there are very concrete steps we can take to prevent something of this magnitude from happening again. One is making the military more volunteer-based, which it seems like they did. Another one is allowing, refusing to increase subsidy of public education or of secondary education, even as inflation takes off. And clearly, I think whether it's intentional or not, seems to have gotten what they wanted, right? Which is a, uh, it is not like allowed the sort of perhaps like economic diversity that uh, could have happened had the government chosen to do that. Yeah, I mean, this is a sort of uncanny thing, right? Where it's like, is this intentional? Is it not? It's sort of, yeah. Um, yeah, it, it seems to have worked out in this case for uh, for the Nixon types, right? <laughs> yeah, and, and people aren't out here protesting like all the time anymore um yeah yeah I guess like back to this point about like what students do expect from the university now I think instead of expecting that the university you know like provides them you know just provides them training for a job maybe provides them training for a job independent from the military or whatever which is which seems like um some of the major concerns that students had maybe a couple decades ago um I feel like in general, like not MIT specific, but in, I think in general, people are just like, well, I want like a nice dorm. I want like student culture. I want these like amenities um, and things like that. And I think something that's really interesting about what you highlight at MIT is that it, for the longest time, it wasn't necessarily exactly that, that students cared about, right? Like, I think you want to talk a little bit, well, you want to set some context actually about just dorm culture and frat culture and student driven stuff at MIT in general? Of course. I was struck when I first came here just how much choice there was. And there are all these, there are so many different like small communities of people who are highly, highly connected to each other, whether it's through fraternities or sororities. 
or through all these individual clubs or these really strange dorms where each individual floor of a dorm had its own like history and like, <laughs> like traditions and rituals, right? Uh, famously, uh, there's a dorm called Burton Connor. And they have like a third floor where they painted all the walls orange and all they tiled all the floors with like uh, orange and black tiling. And coincidentally, they call themselves the Burton Bombers. And they named themselves after uh, like a B-52 bomber from, ironically, from like the Vietnam era. And I think that's the story that you consistently hear from from all these different communities, which is a lot of the the kind of thriving culture that you see where these kind of subcultures that you could write, write entire Wikipedia articles about really did spawn out of the, this anti-war movement era. That's where you see the rise of the counterculture. It's where you see in general the rise of the hippie and the rise of uh, just kind of this anti-establishment attitude. The acid and other uh, recreational drugs becoming way more popular. And I think it's something that still exists for the most part in at MIC. And we spend a lot of the past last 20 years of the history really going over how that has been clawed back. Uh, one of the mo one of the more recent presidents of MIT said that, you know, there are still a few trends from the 1970s that these students really did not want to let go of, but, you know, we had to do it. And uh, we had to make this place less of a parody of itself. He was talking about the early 2000s. And I can only imagine what how weird m things must have looked back then, given how when I first arrived here in like 2018 or so, it still felt like uh, I was in another planet, right? People <laughs> <laughs> twirling file over the place, clothing optional, uh, dorms, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Uh, uh, oh, sorry. Continue. No, you were going to ask a follow-up. Yeah, no, this is sort of a sidebar, um, but you were mentioning like university admin and something I noticed like throughout the film is that at many points you introduce a new era by just like telling us about a new university president. Like this person became president next year. They were previously professor in Y department. Like, and it's really, it comes up multiple times over the course of the film. And I'm really curious why you decided to frame it um, in this way. Like why is it important to think about administrators um, sort of in this like systematic historical way? No, I appreciate that. I think it's, we found it just very interesting to go after the personalities of all these different presidents of MIT. We try to give like a strong bio and overview of every person who was president of MIT from World War II up until the present day, with a few exceptions. And when you do that, you get some fascinating stories, like with President Jerome Wiesner, who's president of the school from the 70s, during the, all of the 70s, because his whole bio is just the entire movie up to that point. He was part of the he was part of the Manhattan Project, the group that created America's nuclear bomb. He was part of the radiation laboratory, which we spend so much time uh, giving a bunch of uh, attention to. And he was crucial to all these different movements, all these other characters that were important in the movie's plot up to that point. And then you find out that the person who had lived through this whole plot is now sitting at the top of it and deciding its future. And then he hands the torch off to someone who then experiences those historical forces that he helped create. What I'm also interested in, though, is like the weird position in culture that the American university president has, because they can't really pass legislation, of course. And if they do pass policy, it only affects like 5,000 people, 10,000 people. <laughs> uh, however, the choices they make still do affect all of us. They still, the research that they choose to emphasize, the sorts of donors that they try to court. I mean, we have President uh, Compton, who was president during World War II. His savviness and his ability alongside Vannevar Bush to uh, convince FDR to give special, to give particularly special attention to MIT is why we even made this movie in the first place. And you see how that applies in later cases. When we talk about later presidents, though, we really go into how they made the day-to-day -day experience at MIT the way it is, with a lot of those more historical forces sitting in the background, and specifically the the rise and the fall of MIT's countercultural scene. We talk a lot about kind of the rise of drug use at MIT in the 60s and 70s. There's we dedicate a, a lot of time to this LSD debate where uh, this one amazing professor, Jerome uh, Letvin, has a debate with Timothy Leary, who's like a proto-hippie, is one of the fathers of the countercultural scene. And coincidentally, he becomes one of the proto-Silicon Valley thinkers and believes that the internet is going to create this new global consciousness that is going to completely solve war and change people's minds. And it all fits so perfectly, right? Because you had... This uh, Timothy Leary guy, this counterculture guy who insists, do drugs, don't, don't care about school, none of your political action will ever make a difference, it's all shrinking your brain, 
And this whole Vietnam War thing clearly did not achieve that much. Um, and Jerome, this Letvin guy, this professor, who uh, is saying pretty much the opposite, right? He's like, uh, you're giving up your core functions of your brain by listening to this guy. But I think that general attitude, this attitude of apathy, and this uh, just like all of the aesthetic that's associated with what Leary was promoting and what like, I guess, less radical versions of Leary were promoting, I think are still present at the school to this day. I think you can separate though, like the the anti-political things that Leary had to say from, I guess, the other parts, which is about like self-expression, doing whatever you want, tearing down the wall of a dorm if you, <laughs> or I guess uh, painting all over the wall of a dorm because uh, you can, and all the fun stories that come out of that. There are there are various dimensions to it. What we ended up dedicating an incredible amount of screen time to at the very end was uh, the saga of Senior House specifically. So I was. I visited campus as like a, as a young high schooler when this was happening, right when Senior House got shut down. But Senior House was MIT's oldest dorm. It was founded in 1916 or so. And it had been through pretty much every single phase of culture you could imagine, where it's just just guys who looked like they were 30, who were like World War I veterans, just all living there, all the way up to uh, becoming incredibly important, like part of Boston, Massachusetts cultural scene. In the 1990s, they hosted this thing called Steer Roast every year. It was like a concert slash alumni gathering in April. They had Nirvana show up in about in the 80s or 90s, I believe. Countless other acts that seemed to carry a lot of importance. And then they became a very important space for, uh, for LGBT people. And just in general, a big source of MIT's countercultural scene. And now it was all these things across this entire time. But it caused a massive uh, storm of like national attention when they ended up heavily regulating it. This is around 2017. And I think a lot of professors, including especially a lot of professors who themselves, in many cases, were alumni of this place, of this dorm, were furious that MIT was trying to sanitize its culture and get rid of something that is so crucial. And what the administrators of MIT at the time were saying is, we're doing this in the name of safety. This place is unsafe. There are stories about this place that we literally cannot tell you about. But just so you should know, there is problem with violence. There's a problem with uh, drug use and various other things that we're not allowed to say. And some people took that at face value. Others didn't. But I think what Wesley and I were really interested in with this whole saga is why, how we got to this point, how a university that allowed its students to get their skulls smacked by police just 50 years prior were now very concerned about the day-to-day -day safety of students. And we, it's, actually, it's a long but fascinating history. And we think it really kicks off in about the 90s. And that's where we talk about how another side of MIT's living culture of the fraternities was very heavily regulated after a very tragic uh, accident happened. Multiple very tragic accidents happened that really caused MIT to, and just all schools in the country to really take a step back and decide to start regulating alcohol consumption, start to regulate how MIT students throw parties, decide that maybe we should have the, <laughs> we should have the MIT police visit every hour to make sure that the house isn't burning down, that sort of thing. But I think it leads to a more important thing. You were talking about uh, the uh, customerification of the university that you had mentioned to me earlier. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's like, well, if I'm going to be paying like $70,000 to be here or whatever it is, um, you know, like maybe your parents are paying $70,000 or like your parents are buying $70,000 to pay the university. Like there's an expectation of some sort that like, my I, I will get like a return on investment right it's this very like like conservative like like not even not even in a political sense it's just like the very, very like risk averse type of um type of orientation um but yeah I, I think like this whole point about like these student dorms senior house as a cultural center um is super interesting and I want to pull a little bit on that thread um that you were saying of you know, like the sort of the manifestations of counterculture that came up in like the 70s or whatever, um, that's sort of how they're manifest now. Um, and I'm wondering if at, at this point, it's like how much of this sort of countercultural ethos is aesthetic and how much of it is like sort of like substantive in the way that like, you know, the militancy um, of the student movements back then were like how much of it is really about like, you know, like vibing and like painting dorms um, and how much of it is about like, you know, like burn it all down. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. I think 
it is there's definitely a lot of aesthetics to it that's why it looks it looks very different from like how uh like a more traditional dorm if uh for those in the know like a dorm like massey where it is just a used to be a hotel got converted into a student dorm and it looks exactly like you think it would look there's a massive aesthetic difference right people dye their hair all the time people paint all over the walls they create these beautiful murals uh there's just an incredible emphasis on building and like they build a roller coaster every few years they build these massive wooden forts and structures all all the time and i think there's the the lifestyle which i think is substantively different which is i am going to live spontaneously i'm going to uh, be as creative as i can be right now this is a very special time in my life where i'm young i have a lot of free time in my hands so i want to uh i want to just cover my entire dorm room in a mural that's going to last there for like 20 years and i i have a weekend to kill i'm going to do it or i'm going to learn how to uh i want to roll uh, learn how to uh, twirl fire and do like that whole flame throwing thing that uh, you see videos of. And I think that is really unique. I think to being a driven, being both driven and living in an environment where you actually do have all this free time. You're still on that financial runway where you don't have to worry about a day job, raising a family quite yet. And I do think that is substantive when it comes to like the political implications that you saw of the MIT's countercultural scene from earlier. Uh, MIT's older dorms called Bexley which was senior house on steroids to some degree. Like they were known for actually producing LSD and exporting it elsewhere. At least so the legend goes. Uh, it was a student at Bexley who invited the Grateful Dead, the famous countercultural band, to come perform at MIT just one night in response to the Kent State shooting back in the early 70s. And so you see both a layer of kind of like what you'd associate with the drug use and the partying, but also like a genuine real politi- genuinely real political project in their case to... Uh, View and what they viewed as uh, uh, just tyranny over pe- students' freedom of expression and freedom of protest, and the Vietnam War itself. I see less of a political project going on in the in the military sense. I think there is still a very strong emphasis on progressive values that uh, that you correctly see throughout all these dorms, and oh. I think that's also part of why that's a lot of the flack, the source of a lot of the flack that MIT was getting. They're like, "Why are you making it so that the the best?" The, in the most literal sense, the safest place in MIT for all these these students, why are you choosing that one to get, be getting rid of? There's another dorm that is very boring, very sanitized, that has the highest suicide rate of all time, and you are making no noises about shutting that one down because it's safe. And to actually solve the suicide problem there, you would have to fundamentally restructure MIT works. And uh, I can't relitigate their exact response, but I think a lot of people were dissatisfied with that. Yeah, those are the conversations Admin <laughs> hates to have. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and I think like the, the, what's like super important, what I appreciate about um, sort of tracing this culture that you do in this film is that I think from my experience at undergrad is this question of like institutional memory or lack thereof. Yeah. Like students cycle through the university, you know, every four plus or minus a few years. And that's such a short period of time on like a university timescale. So, you know, you mentioned like you started like 2018, right? And yeah. like, you know, like that's like you already don't know what it was like in early 2000s, for example. Um, and so it's like it's really difficult to, you know, agitate for policies or fight against administrative decisions. Um, and I guess like with that sort of backdrop, what do you why is it so, I guess, significant um, that MIT is really cracking down on these like dorms that are like, very culturally vibrant? That's a good question. Well, I think the Bexley is a good thing to point to. It was a dorm that got shut down in 2013, and there's very, very little memory on campus of what that place was like. We have videos, we have some photos, there's rumors, of course, of what it was like way back in the day. But because everyone's the last people to be there in their late 20s now, uh, they're not, not many of them are really coming back to campus and keeping the rumors alive. And that is something that a lot of these dorms have to fight against. And the way that MIT does it, and I imagine a lot of other schools do it, is if they have a dorm that's unruly, a dorm that they're really not happy about, they're act, they're kind of they're acting a bit more edgy than they probably should, such as East Campus. They say they they uh, they renovate it, right? And these renovations are justified. I think East Campus is a hundred year, years old. Uh, it's a lot of its bathrooms are not in great condition. Like the walls are probably not going to last much longer. <laughs> and a lot of students were like, these renovations are going to take three or four years. Like what you're proposing is going to destroy this a hundred years of like oral tradition and culture and history, like anthropological type of stuff. Right. And I think in order to appease them, the school traditionally 
when past dorms have been renovated, what they do is they say, we'll still let all of you live together in a separate dorm. And then the people who are freshmen now will be seniors when the dorm comes back up and they'll be able to keep the tradition alive. And this has worked in the past. Uh, Senior House was famously massively renovated in the 90s. And it was kind of uncanny to read about it because all of the complaints about these modern renovations applied in this one as well. People were, were like, you're destroying our culture. You're painting all of your mural. You're covering all of our murals. You're making it so that there are way more door, way more rooms. You're like trying to make it more cost efficient. You're trying to squeeze all the life out of this thing and you're trying to maximize the cost effectiveness. <laughs> and literally all those things, that criticism has been applied to what is about to happen to East Campus and what has already happened right now to this other dorm called Burton Connor. And I am hopeful to see that Senior House did survive, albeit only it only lasted another 15, 20 years after that. But every, by all accounts, Senior House was still a very weird, very like cultured place even after that renovation happened. So I think they're in this position, administrators, where they've been here for much longer than most students. So I think they feel the sense that they know this place better. Someone who's been like part of the chancellor's office in charge of student life for over 10 years. They probably think I've seen many freshmen come and go, like, and they they're telling me what is best uh, for the rest of the students. <laughs> but it's very hard to be. There are very few administrators who have both been through the undergraduate experience themselves and are acting as administrators. And there are a few presidents who do that. Most of them, of course, were grad students, so they didn't really see like the undergraduate experience here. Some of them yeah. were undergrads as well. They call them lifers, people who've been stuck here their whole lives, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> But yeah. I think it's very rare to have administrators with true perspective, or I guess undergraduate students with true perspective on these two, uh, these two competing things, right? How do, I, uh, how do we remain a healthy university that charges 70K a, a year, <laughs> that keeps <laughs> its students safe, and also doesn't destroy why people want to go to the school in the first place? And then students are experiencing, I guess, the opposite of that. Yeah, exactly. Um yeah, so we've spent a lot of time talking about like culture and student life. And um, as we sort of come near the end, um, I wanted to zoom back out um, to this question of like, you know, capital B, capital P progress. And, you know, what is student culture and student life and what these like 20 year olds are getting up to on weekends? Like, what does this all have to do with MIT as like an academic project? Um, and why, why is it important to talk about both at the same time? It's a good question. I think people seem to value serendipity a lot and just randomly running into people from very different fields so that these new ideas can come together. I've seen like countless people love making TED Talks about that. right? And I think it, there's a lot of truth to it. right? And I think people say that the reason why MIT's radiation laboratory in the 40s succeeded is all the doors were open. You were heavily, the culture heavily encouraged for you to just interrupt other people and ask them what they're doing and see if you can help. And the manager would be as open and accommodating as possible. And that culture really seems to apply to the dorms as well. And it seems to apply to a lot of the different curriculums of these different part engineering departments and science departments at the school. I imagine a lot of different schools that value this. I think what we think of innovation is when, at least as it's been described to me, is when that sort of serendipity leads to genuinely novel technologies or technologies being applied in a way that you never could have imagined previously. And I think the, I guess the pro student life uh, side of things would say that in order to achieve this massive amount of progress, you need, uh, you need students, you need professors, you need faculty who feel very socially engaged with one another, who are happy and who are actually uh, enjoying their lives, right? And in order to achieve these sorts of, this magic that people keep on referring to and that people keep coveting. What progress is in general though, is also like a really interesting question by itself. And we try to meditate this as much as possible. It's become almost like cliche now to be like, oh yeah, computers have always been used to, uh, to make weapons better, to figure out where to fire your artillery shells, right? And I think everyone knows that at this point. But I think it really does raise a genuine question, which is, is there a point in history where the intentions were pure, right? <laughs> where it wasn't in order to just like extract as much profit out of a, a given situation as possible, or it wasn't in order to make the best possible weapon. Like when was innovation as pure and as a, as like, virtuous as possible? And I guess you could point to not like the rise of NASA and the moon landing. If you ignore, I guess, like the reason, the fact that it happened during the Cold War. And so I think we go over all these examples, all this genuinely brilliant engineering and these really fascinating characters that made it happen, such as like Doc Draper creating inertial navigation. And then you find out why he made it. And I think it's this very bittersweet uh, phenomenon that just keeps happening over and over again. 
And I think there is some promise to having individ- wealthy individuals as the donors. I guess that's what the promise was. They are immune to all of these different incentives, this, this profit motive that could keep research too short-sighted or the motive to actually make it so that these, to kind of steer research towards being as deadly as possible. But of course, we spend the last few decades explaining and examining what happens when you make that the emphasis, which I don't want to spoil too much, of course. <laughs> right. But, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think there's a, <laughs> the reason why we talk about any of this, of course, is because very, there's always new stories that come out of all these, these three different modes of funding and these three different modes of doing innovation, making, quote, progress. Whether it's through the government, it's through private individuals, or it's through corporations. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, spoiler alert, um, the MIT <laughs> Media Lab no longer gets a lot of funding from a certain individual um, who has initials JE, which, by the way, I thought was, like, such a funny, like, that's such a bad disguise <laughs> or cover. Like, I wonder who JE could be. Um, <laughs> yeah, if I was the director of the Media Lab, uh, yeah. Very, yeah. Yeah, very... Uh, three stooges type of situation (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah exactly um yeah i and i guess like just coming back to this project itself like do you want to like now we've talked for like an hour about you know what's actually in the documentary how you made it i guess for you like why why do you think this is important just like in general like it started off being you know a sort of fun thing you did but clearly it's something that you know, you've invested a lot of time into, and I think that, you know, is, is worth considering, you know, for people even who aren't at MIT. Um, I guess, what do you hope that viewers take away from regressions? Um, what is it that, you know, an MIT alum or a MIT affiliated person, what do you hope they take away from it? What do you hope non-MIT viewers take away from it? I've thought about it a lot. I think, the individual stories that we tell, I, I just love telling other people about them. Uh, like these different like individual dramas about what was happening when NASA was coming about. I mean, I'm the type of person who's just very, very into like all the individual anecdotes that come out when you look at the history of a place. But I think these themes are pretty universal. And especially uh, in our circles that are so obsessed with innovation and especially computation, and how to make the world a genuinely better place. I think we have an example, like a, I consider this a case study of an entire institution that has uh, promised that that is what it's going to hope to do. Through technology such as computation, it is going to materially improve the status of everyone on Earth. And we really go over the in, just this really fascinating story of characters who make that happen. And I think that experience is definitely elevated if you yourself have been to this place and you already have prior experience and a prior emotional attachment to like the the people, the institutions, the buildings that we talk about. But my hope is through our choice of music and through the quality of our footage, uh, it should be a fun thing to watch. I have a friend who uh, who was like, it seems like this movie is just about vibes. And I would and I kind of agree at times. <laughs> There's a lot of a lot of it is just for to to see the vibe of it at the time. See, let the music play, let the uh just see these really cool shots of all these different stories and all these different forces taking place. Yeah, I know. I totally agree. It's about the vibes and also just thinking about like, you know, people existed like X number of years ago and, you know, they had their own little dramas and whatever as well. Um, yeah, I guess for you, what do you, what does success look like for you with, with this film? It's a good question. I keep saying that's a good question, but this one's a good question. I Thanks. My baseline goal, my underlying goal is to make it so that the number of hours spent watching this movie exceeds the number of hours that Wesley and I spent making it. <laughs> if we can get net positive on where that, where are one. you? Where are you at right now? Have you been keeping? Track? I don't want to think. Of, I do not want to think about it. But I, I worry it's in the. It's definitely in the four figures at this point. If we can exceed that number, which I think YouTube will tell us if we do, then that'll be amazing. I think like the secondary goal is to enter this canon of movies that we are basing this off of and that we were so deeply inspired by, both the sort of genre that Adam Curtis that BBC documentarian helped create and also movies like progressions movies like uh, the November actions. And there was something very heartwarming that happened where we did a big premiere of this movie back in May. The cut of the movie was a bit rougher and we got hundreds of people to pull through to like MIT's biggest lecture hall through this old student club that's been around for forever. 
And uh, I see this family and this, uh, this woman comes up to me and she says that her parents made MIT progressions and they thought it would be the coolest thing ever if they got to go. I, I almost started crying. I was like, oh my God. And then she was like, this is our six month old, by the way. And he's wearing a little shirt that said, uh, said MIT on it. Uh, he had to leave after about 10 minutes because it's not a, you should not bring a toddler to this movie, but <laughs> it, it, it meant the world to be able to meet, to meet her, meet her husband and just this entire lineage of people that I just kind of thought existed is I, they've just kind of existed as like concepts or characters like, oh yeah, this was made by some anonymous students before me. Being able to like meet these people, meet the people who are involved in like the student protest movement as well was, was very striking or it was very heartwarming and it, it added a lot of dimension to it. So I think that's, that's the ultimate goal. Make it so that this movie is as easily accessible as possible 20, 30, 40 years from now, just as we pretty easily got access to progressions. I think some of that will be resolving the impending copyright issues that we're about to face, but that's why, uh, that's what raising, that's what raising money is for, but we'll have more to announce about that later. Oh my God. Yeah. Well, I would have <laughs> cried. Like I'm like literally about to cry right about that, <laughs> like family with a baby. Um, yeah. Well, thanks for taking the time to talk. Uh, this was really fun. And I, I hope the number of views on this movie far exceeds the number of hours you put into it. Yeah, that's once we do that, well, I'm good. Then we're done. <laughs>